Thanks for joining us today on the Port City Church Podcast. With multiple campuses existing within Southeastern North Carolina, our mission is to be helpful and hopeful as we reach people and help them walk with God. To learn more about the heart behind our church, we encourage you to visit us at portcity.church. Good morning. It's great to uh, welcome uh, each of you, all of our campuses uh, together as uh, we continue to talk about, um, really it's, these are all sort of the implications of our mission, uh, which is if you've been around for any length of time, you probably are aware that our mission is to reach people and to help them walk with God. And it's easy to interpret that, uh, especially that first part, as get bigger and grow your church and then help people uh, walk with God. And what we mean is something really different. Uh, we're not talking about strategies to get people to attend our church. We're talking about a way to test and measure our own hearts, that our reach is actually what we are willing to care about, what we're willing to extend ourselves for, who we are and who we become um, as a people. We've spent a lot of time over the last few weeks talking about this idea of connection, and uh, now we're talking about what it means for us to live safely within the care of another person. And a lot of us, when we think about care, uh, what we tend to mean is that this is what we do when we have done what we can uh, for ourselves, and it hasn't worked, so we seek out the care uh, of another person. And the idea is that maybe if I can, sometimes it's professional, sometimes it's pastoral, sometimes it's just sort of sharing something with another trusted friend, and you're hoping that they can provide some kind of solution, some kind of fix to whatever it is that you are struggling with. And that's a part of it. But to, to live safely in the care of another person is something more. I think it reveals something about how we're made, how we are intended to live. We mentioned, alluded to this some last week, but that as human beings, especially human beings who've grown up in sort of Western America, we tend to think that we are made to be independent. We are made to be self-sufficient. You should be able to take care of yourself. Uh, and if you can't and you need other people in your life, then something is wrong with you rather than to recognize that perhaps we've never, we've never been intended or we were never intended to be self-sufficient. We were never intended to live independently, but in fact, there's an intended dependence that God has created us with so we can actually experience what it's like to be alive, to understand what it's like to trust and to be trusted and to live safely within the care of another person. And so uh, today I want to talk about, like, basically if, if care is not just about being fixed, then what's, what, is, what is it? And the way I've thought about this is this is what I mean by beyond crisis. When you, you know, what's happened has happened in our church. We say, hey, we want to reach people and help them walk with God. We can help you with your marriage. We can help you with your finances. We can help you with this. We can help you raise your kids. We can, whatever, we can help. People say, okay, we trust you to help us. They show up, we help them. And they go, oh, thank you very much. And we're just gonna go back with our, doing what we were doing before. And it's like, well, that was kind of not the point. We would hope you would connect or stick or like, you know, it's not just thank you, um, but it's like to belong. And so we recognize that this whole idea can become very consumeristic if we're not really careful. And we can just fall into that's the way we think about this. And so we've been talking about this to understand what, is, what does it mean to, be, to live beyond the crisis or the felt need that we have in front of us? What's beyond that? And what I believe is beyond that is actually what we are all looking for and hoping for, and that is the power to change us, the power to shape us. 
we would call it sort of in the, uh, the, the Christian world or in my world, spiritual formation. And so spiritual formation, for those of you uh, who are paying attention, all of you, every human being in this room listening to me has been formed spiritually in some way, whether you have a depth of belief and it's growing or whether you uh, have moderate to no belief and it's being confirmed, there's some reason why that is the case. Something is happening. This is the process um, by which you have become the way that you are. And if you've been around a long time, you know what I'm gonna say here. I mentioned it last week. We talked about this idea of encounter, formation, expression. And basically we, we looked again, this is last week, whatever, there's something that has happened to you, something that you have encountered or experienced. Whatever that experience is, has shaped or formed or done something inside of you. And out of that thing that is done inside of you, therein becomes the way in which you interact and live within the world around you. How you contribute, how you participate, how you present yourself or project yourself, right? If, and, and you can put this over any scenario and you will find um, at the root of why you do the things that you do, you will look back and see what is happening inside of you. You will inevitably be able to go back and probably find some kind of experience or something that has happened that has shaped or made this a reality for you in the way that you see the world. Okay, so that, that's, that's the, if you, we could talk more about that, but I just don't have time today. I hope that makes sense to you. So what I've become convinced of <clears throat> over the course of my life is that spiritual formation is directly connected to the way we think. In fact, Paul wrote this. He said, do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but to be transformed, to let some work happen, to be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind, a continual assessment and understanding of how we think about the world around us. Now, most of us, uh, you haven't probably thought about what you were thinking in any length of time over the last few weeks. So I just wanna sort of pose the question, what do you do with your thoughts when you think something, right? If something you read on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, whatever, and it makes you mad, you think about it. It's like, whoa. And then you add a few more of those things in there and it's like worried about your bills or what about this? Or every time you get something in the mail, or every time someone says something to you and your brains end up looking a lot like this, right? With just thoughts bouncing around, pinging around everywhere. One of my favorite quotes that I use is from Henry Nouwen, who was kind of a mystic, a Catholic priest, a mystic, written, written a lot about sort of a contemplative life. And he says, my, describing his own inner world, he said, my mind is like a banana tree full of monkeys. Now, that is exactly how I feel most of the time. And so along comes, you know, again, this exploration when especially being a young pastor and learning what, what formation is like and what it's supposed to be like and how do, I, how do I understand this? And I can't even keep my own head straight. And I would just focus on, you know, renewing of your minds. And I would read things like Romans chapter eight, which we'll look at in just a moment. It says that the mind that is set on the flesh is death, but the mind that is set on the spirit is life and peace. And that all of these things, all of these, these, these ideas are ways for us, invite us to think and incorporate into how it is that we, more importantly, who it is we become and therein the kind of life that we live. 
Most of us, if we're honest, have shrunk this gap. Like the, the amount of time it takes for what we are thinking to sort of take root into our hearts and souls in meaningful and powerful ways takes far more time and effort than a lot of us are willing to give. Paul wrote this in 2 Corinthians. He says, we do not wage war as the world does, but the weapons that we have been given, this is 2 Corinthians chapter 10, but the weapons that we have been given are powerful. They're divinely powerful to demolish every stronghold and every, some, some versions say, every prideful obstacle that stands against our knowledge of God. For we take every thought captive and we make it obedient to Jesus Christ. Now, <clears throat> that's a cool tweet, but what do you do with this? What do you do with this? What does it mean? What did it mean for me? It meant that I would begin to say, okay, perhaps I can think about what I'm thinking about. Perhaps I can spend some time and try to consider what it is that I'm thinking about. And most of us have thoughts in our minds, thoughts that terrify us, thoughts that paralyze us. I just wanna ask you kind of a question. What do you do with what you think? What happens to it? When a thought pops in your head, what happens to you? How are you steered or shaped or formed by all the thoughts that are running in and out of your brain? Are you inclined toward curiosity? Do you get curious about what you're thinking? Or is it more desperation? When the thought hits, you immediately begin to panic because it's made you mad. You think the world is over or whatever it might be. You think your life is over. There's actually a ton of psychology, psychology and psychiatry and, and mental health. And, and just for, I assume we're on the same page, that we understand that mental health is probably at a crisis point in our culture. We agree with that. And what has happened in that is what everybody ends up believing or thinking that as soon as you wake up and you have a thought and you are sad or you are overwhelmed, you immediately are terrified that you are going over the cliff to a place of lifelong depression or a lifelong struggle with anxiety disorder. And there is no in-between. And no one has ever reminded you that we live in a world where suffering happens and brokenness happens, brokenness is the reality and hard things are a part of the lives that we live in. We're going to feel sad and there's gonna be uncertainty and unsettledness around us and anxiety is going to be a normal response to the human experience in a world that has lost its bearings. And it hasn't lost its bearings in the last four or eight or 12 years, depending on which party you are, right? It lost its bearings in the very beginning when we were broken and separated from the way in which we had been intended and created to live all along. And so I want to talk about the implications of us, you and I, this way we, we live safely in the care of another and what happens in our brains. We've been talking about care and we're using this definition that care is cultivating space where we can avail ourselves to one another in order to belong 
and therein become. And I don't, if you, you, you probably should take some time if you haven't to listen to last week, but this radical assumption that we're not trying to help you go, here's our standard for you to belong. Therefore, go and get yourself fixed and get yourself in order and get yourself together. And then you can come and join and belong to us. We're saying, no, we actually in fact believe that you need to belong here. And it is in your belonging that you will actually become. And we're trying to sort of figure out ways to cultivate space. To cultivate space, right? If you're not just trying to fix another person's problems when you're, when you're caring for another person, then what is it you're doing? You're connecting. You're building trust. You're doing some things that are gonna allow us to experience the kind of depth, the kind of strength that we desire in the relationships that we all want. We settle for a lot less, but we all deeply want this. And sometimes the first place you have to cultivate that space is between our ears. So that's where I want for us to focus for the next little bit. Curiosity or desperation. Social scientists, psychologists, psychiatrists have all kind of uh, observe what is happening in our culture and that most of the thinking sort of is very binary. It's all or nothing. It's either this or it's that. In that we have lost the nuance by which we understand how to live in so much of the middle space that makes up so much of our actual experience. There's the catastrophe. If this happens, my world is over. There's the generalization. This person did this, therefore they are all like that. There's the sense of blame that I'm a victim and this person is the one who has victimized me. And we just sort of continuing this divisive, disintegrating way of doing this. That, that this, this desperate way of thinking, the sense that our minds are always inclined to the worst possible scenarios and to the worst possible uh, assumptions about other people and all the different things that happen is disintegrating to us. And so I wanna suggest that perhaps there's a different way for us to use our minds. And it's not just to understand the nuances of our culture, but rather the mind serves, I believe, to actually awaken our heart. It serves to bring us something that we can see differently, something we can encounter differently so that we actually become and learn how to live different. The problem or the challenge is, and I I was just kind of doing some research because this, this essentially is most everybody's primary encounter in the world. You know this, right? In the 1970s, I don't know how they actually figured this out, but the 1970s, the... Uh, average number of advertising messages that a person would experience in the 1970s was around, I think they said about 500 a day. Today, today the average number of advertising messages is between six and 10,000 messages a day. And if you had the political season, it probably doubles, right? It's like you are avalanched with people trying, and they're not just trying to get you to see their message, they're trying to grab your attention and make you respond to their message. We've become masters at this. It is estimated that a person who is in college age and younger will spend over 10 hours a day in front of their screen, upwards of four hours with their phone in front of their face. And please don't don't hear me saying, "I, I am grateful for technology. I use social media. I think there are some beautiful things about it. But what I do want to say is this, especially if you are one and you're here and you sort of struggle, 
your inclination in your mental health is tipping in a direction that feels unhealthy, you will not, you will not grow more mentally healthy and mindlessly scroll at the same time. It is not going to happen. At some point in time, what we are going to have to all learn is a mental discipline to discipline our minds to think and to pay attention to what we are pay, paying attention to and to paying attention to what we are thinking about or we should not expect things to be much different. Perhaps we should expect them to only get worse. What we have learned, and it's really fascinating, it's been a fascinating journey. Again, I think there's, there's a lot of merit in this, but it's interesting that we have sort of lost the idea of interruption. When I was a kid, you couldn't just barge into someone's conversation, right? You can't do that. If someone's talking, what do you do? You stand, I mean, we all know this. You stand back and you politely wait when that person's done, then you can insert yourself into the conversation so you're not interrupting them. But then we create this, and it's like, if you haven't texted me back in two seconds, I'm like mad at you because I think you're mad at me and no one's ever taught you that maybe you interrupted a conversation that was already happening or something I was already doing that you just don't have the right to interrupt me anytime that you want simply because you have my number, right? We just, and our kids have just grown up, but there's no, there's no thought of that. I remember having this conversation with my kids. She's like, dad, you're not texting that person back. I'm like, because I'm talking to you. So they're they going to be mad. I'm like, so? Like, I'm not really sure that she's like, I didn't know you could do that. I'm like, of course you can do it. It's your phone. <clears throat> but it's like, it's news. And the reason it's news, listen, this is not like, oh, we're so smart in the younger generation. This is not that at all. This is the way we think. So sociologists have identified the culture, the tone of the culture is that we live in a constant state of partial attention. I think it's actually worse than that. I think we live in a constant state of distraction. That we're constantly distracted and pulled, whether it's a text message or Snapchat or something we feel like we have to, to get to. And then we've created sort of the most addictive way to communicate this. I'm a grown man and I'm relatively disciplined in my thought life and the way I do things. And TikTok, I don't know what happened. I had to delete it off my phone. I was like, you're just like going, whoa. And it's like, it's just dances and sound. Like what has happened to me? I just deleted it, I can't take it. I'm not suggesting you do that. Unless of course you can't put it down, then maybe you ought to. Because I don't look at TikTok, you know why? Because it ain't on my phone. And so, because at some point you have to get serious about what is happening to you, about what it is that you are encountering. And to recognize that your phone is your primary mechanism for encounter, more than likely, is a really important first step. They've also identified that what is happening, the current condition of mental health is obviously fueled by the devices. It's actually Frederick Nietzsche, um, who, is, who had a lot of chronic, Frederick Nietzsche is famous for saying God is dead, a famous German philosopher, and was, um, had, had been chronically ill and couldn't see very well and was having trouble writing until someone invented the typewriter and he could no longer, he didn't have to see because he could feel the keys and he could begin to type and write once again. And he felt like he came alive and he began to talk about this mechanism becoming an extension of who he was. That the tools that he was using were actually forming and shaping who he was. There were studies that were done about 15 years ago kind of playing that out and explaining how the devices that we use are actually forming and shaping us. Encounter, 
information. What's up over there? Yeah, I'm gonna order my expression, right? It's, it all, it's always like this. So what we have to do is figure out how, what kind of disciplines, what do we need in order for this to happen? And this fundamentally believe, starts with what it is that we see, what it is that we are willing to believe. This is what the scriptures teach us. I want you to hear this. This is out of Isaiah. The Lord, God himself, keeps in perfect peace those whose minds are stayed on the Lord. Did you hear that? God has promised that he will keep you. He'll do something in here. Perfect peace for those whose minds are stayed on the Lord. How in the world do you do that? The first thing is, you actually have to believe it. You actually have to believe that that is available to you. I think one of the things that I think is so hopeful to me today is that while most of the world believes or seems to believe that your mental health uh, sort of plummeting and um, disintegrating into the abyss of like, right, the whole world is over, um, it seems inevitable. I actually believe that mental health, to have healthy mental health is actually possible. It's possible for you and for me. And so I want for you to sort of believe this, to begin to believe this. And if not, let me just encourage you and let what I believe at least sort of inspire you or move you to consider this a little bit differently. I wanna read this together. You're gonna to know more about this next week. This is where we begin. Adam and Eve were created to trust God. They walked with God in the garden and they enjoyed fellowship with him. But then another voice entered the story. The serpent asked Adam and Eve to trust him. He deceived them into eating the fruit they were forbidden by God to eat and eating the fruit was sin for sure. But the underlying sin was their failure to trust God. I think all of us have heard this or know this. This is the sin that broke everything. It's the sin that Jesus died to rescue us from, this sin and all of its offshoots. Like Adam and Eve, we too encounter many different voices. We are exposed to so many competing and inconsistent philosophies about who we are and how we should live. Anybody relate to that? We are exposed to so many different places, competing philosophies and voices about who you are, about who I am, about who, how you should live, about how I should live. So where do we place our trust? Which voice governs us? This is the ultimate question. I think in our culture, what is happening to us is this idea of both division and over-identifying with struggles. And I don't, mean, I don't mean not taking seriously the trauma that has been inflicted from a lot of things that are serious. A lot of, we, we know we deal with this all the time in our church. There's emotional abuse, there's sexual abuse, there's physical abuse, there's all sorts of things that have left deep scars on many of you. But the solution isn't to identify as that. Don't lose who God has created you to be in something that was done to you, even though it was devastating. What Robert Astorlo observed, 
And I'm not sure what his faith is, but I think it's a brilliant observation. He says, suffering isn't what causes trauma. Experiencing suffering alone is. Trauma is when, we, is when severe emotional pain cannot find a relational home in which it can be held. This is where it gets risky. Because the problem with deep emotional trauma and pain is it is an encounter usually that says the people that you should have been able to trust the most have proven themselves to be able to be trusted the least. And guess what that does to you? It actually undermines the very thing that you need in order to find the healing and the wholeness that you're made for and that I think is available. What we need is we need a place, a relational place, that can hold the weight of what it is that we have been through, what it is that we have experienced. We've talked about this, right, with our relationships to one another, that what we are doing is we are cultivating space where we can trust each other enough, we can begin to rebuild trust. And this is sourced by our relationship with God, which is the ultimate relational place that can hold whatever it is you have been through. It's the reconciled relationship that we have with Him. If you've been created by God, and for God, if that is true, and you hold that as a confession, then it means that every part of your life has been designed to flow from your belonging to him, from your being reconciled to him. That is this part, and there we've got to set our eyes. The Lord keeps in perfect peace those whose minds are stayed on the Lord. This is exactly how Romans 8 kind of unfolds, and I'll walk us through this. Um, I'm going to give you some questions and then an, or some, uh, a couple of things, thoughts and then an assignment. <clears throat> Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live on the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. So just a quick test. When you wake up in the morning, where's your inclination? Right? If you're a good Christian person, you're like, oh, it's, it's on the Spirit. And then you actually interact with people, and then it's on something else, right? That's what happens to us. We want to punch people in the face. We want to, you know, all these kind of things that we want to do. And, and so we, we start off one way, but it just says very clearly that, that, that there's this two trajectories to our thinking, to where our mindset is. And then in verse six, he says, to the mind set on the flesh is what? You can say it out loud so I can write it down. The mind set on the flesh has a trajectory towards death. This is like the disintegration. This is the death of the soul. This is where we sort of come apart. But the mind that is set on the spirit is what? Yeah, which, which one sounds better? Is life and peace. It's this original life that we have been created and called to live. It's the life that we're talking about when we say life exchange, this is what we're talking about. So it requires us to have a mind that is set on this, this idea of God and his presence with us. And this is how it unfolds. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, to his intention, to his way, to his rule. And indeed it cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Time out. These are, those who live in this inclination cannot please God. Why? Here's what most people end up believing. Because you've done bad things and you continue to do bad things. 
is not what it says. The reason this mind, this mindset, this way cannot please God is because you aren't trusting him. You're going to find that everything about this comes back to trust. You want to find wholeness in your heart. It is going to be, it's going to require the restoration of trust. I recognize people are difficult to trust. I know that. I know that. So I'm not suggesting we'll help you walk through all that, but, but I, you just have to, we have to at least get this here because all of us almost immediately talk ourselves out of trusting anybody because we've learned that we can't trust anybody. And we cannot do that any longer. He goes on, he says, and this, this is just an encouragement to Paul, from Paul to this group of followers of Jesus. He says, but you are not in the flesh. Verse nine, you are not in the flesh. If in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit, uh, who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although your bodies are dead because of sin, your spirits are alive because you have been made right with him. Righteousness is not snotty, snobbish, condescending behavior. Righteousness is our restored or returned rightness to God. And this is what I think is really interesting. If the spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead, dwells in you. It's a pretty powerful thing to think about. Like God like brought Jesus back out of the grave. That same spirit that did that, that same life force that did that is like, huh, it's here. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will do what? Will also give life to your limbs and arms and minds and eyes as well. So we read the Bible and we think, oh, this is like really good. But this, like, just think about if this were true. So then, brethren, we are debtors, and I'm going to stop there because i got to stop. <clears throat> the problem or the challenge for us is in this renewal of our minds. It's a renewal. It's not in a, oh, I feel so bad that I was on Facebook for nine hours yesterday. It's not that. Um, believe me, all of my sports teams lost I wanted to be uh, somewhere else. But what, what happens to us is we fall into patterns, predictable patterns, patterns that are predictable to us and therein patterns that are exploited in us at almost every turn. They have realized that most of the way in which we, pers- we, we, we get information, the information problem with us is not just that... Um, it's not just the, the speed of the information. It's actually the, the tone of the information. It's typically inflammatory. It's designed to get you to react or respond emotionally, sort of either anger or in some form of, of base desire, whether it be lust or some other thing. And the thing is, we just play into it all the time. And there's a different way for us to live. This has been curated to distract our attention in a way that makes us think we are paying attention. That, that's what's happening. And it's interesting they taught us what happens when we sort of get into these patterns, it actually inflates our sense of moral superiority. This is why people will stop talking to their best friends 
over politics or conspiracy theories because all the messaging just creates a sense of moral superiority that end, end, ends up being the catastrophic, the world's gonna end of this, and this is all or nothing. You're either in or you're out. And we lose all the nuance of everything that is actually required of us to live as human beings in a complex world. And we get this sense of moral superiority and it, at the same time, it undermines our own sense of self-reflection. So I want to ask you, for those of you who've been on, on Instagram or social media or you're watching the news or you're watching your feeds or whatever it is, do you have a corresponding or equal amount of self-reflection that goes along with that? That sort of tempers it. Because otherwise, what, what it's doing is it's just continuing to build and divide and it ends up blinding you and it ends up blinding me to anything that is different than what we already think. It's interesting, Paul's admonition in Romans 12 is present tense. To be transformed, to continually be reformed, not by having renewed your mind, but by the renewing of your mind, the ongoing willingness to think. So here's the three things. This was the most profound lesson I ever learned in my life. And I'm gonna tell you the most profound discipline that's ever helped me with this. And you know where this is going. To think your thoughts, to actually think your thoughts. And here's why, because your thoughts are not just independent marbles bouncing around your brain. They're not just monkeys bouncing around in your banana tree. A thought actually creates a narrative that you begin to tell yourself instinctively every single time without thinking. This is why if you've been married, and you have the same argument with your spouse, it goes the same way every time. People come into my office and they think I'm like some kind of like mind reader because they're like, so let me guess what happens. This happened and this happened. This. <gasps> How'd you know? I'm like, because it's predictable. If you've done this with your kids, some of you guys, your kids and your parents are having the same conversation over and over and over again. You know why? Because that very first thought is exactly the same every time. So when someone says one thing, you think this, this is what happens. And when you get to this thing, the end of your little train, guess what they do? They have a default thought that they think in response and it does the same thing. You put it on repeat. It goes over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. That will make you crazy. At some point, somebody's gotta be willing to take a thought captive and to set it up against the things that really matter and to begin to do something different. Everyone in here has a default narrative about almost every scenario that you experience. You have a default narrative for the person who pulls in front of you in traffic. You know what their mama looks like? You have a default narrative for the person who doesn't vote like you. You have a default narrative for, for almost every single thing you experience and it happens without you thinking. Do you know why? Because we haven't learned to think our thoughts. The reason lust and these other things get embedded in us and we think we're, we're, we're sub, sub, subject to them is because we never learned to say these are not objects of desire. These are human beings who are worthy of dignity and value and respect and have something to offer other than my personal pleasure. And you've got to take one thought captive and begin with that. That's the second thing, capture thoughts. I'm putting them up in one order. 
And number three is start a new story. You need a new narrative. In fact, I got a text message from some really good friends of mine who love me very much. Uh, they were at the Tennessee game yesterday. And thank you. <laughs> Roll Tide. Uh, so they sent me a text and it basically said, we thought of you. They're at the game with their Vols, God, family, son, whatever, whatever order that was. Actually said, God, family, Vols. And sent that and just said, you need a new narrative. <laughs> so <clears throat> some of you need a new narrative because you're stuck in patterns. And these patterns aren't primarily behavior patterns. You think that they are. The only reason you think they are because you've not actually ever slowed down enough to think about it. The new narrative begins back over here with what you are willing to sort of think. The mind that is set on the spirit is life and peace. There's no more effective way that I have found to think your thoughts than to write them down. You knew this was coming. People say, Mike, I, I can't, and I'm not talking about keeping a daily journal. I'm talking about keeping a notebook where you think your thoughts. You don't have to do this every day, but you do need to do this at some point. The problem is the older that you get, you will think your thoughts over and over and over again, and those narratives get more and more and more and more ingrained, and the deeper they are ingrained, the harder they are to change. And eventually people give up on you. They think you won't ever change, you won't ever be different. Think your thoughts. What do you think, right, about, and you fill in the blank. Here's the three questions I want to give you, and then we got to go to lunch, I know. Question number one. What story are you stuck in? And here's the thing, you know it. You know it. And here's how you know it. Because it's either the thing that you indulge in to sort of numb any other tension that fights against it's the thing that you justify that you're willing to argue vehemently for or against. If you justify it, we are, we, are, we are very defensive as human beings. We do not like to be wrong. And in that we have the capacity to justify almost anything. Amen? The rest of you like, we don't justify anything. And here's, let me tell you why I believe that's true. Number two, what truth do you have, do you find hard to believe? That you're worthy, that you matter, that you have a future, that your life, if you don't get it now, it's never gonna happen? Like what, what narrative, what story are you stuck in? What truth do you find Hard to believe. And number three, and, and like I write with a felt tip pen. Do you know why? Because you can't write fast. The reason that I write things down 
is I have to convince my mind that we're going to slow down. And sometimes that takes a lot of work. This is not going to happen. Driving in the car, on the way, because this is what will happen. You'll be thinking about something. Oh, man, Mike said what story, what truth. Oh, oh yeah, here's what it is. And you'll have it all worked out in your head. And someone's going to pull out in front of you, scare the bejeebies out of you, and you're going to forget everything you just thought. And you're going to spend the rest of the day mad at yourself. I can't remember what it is, right? And as you get older, that gets worse. So write it down. Last question is this. Who helps you consider this? The worst part about shame or trauma or struggle is that it forces you to convince yourself that no one should ever know about this. What I'm suggesting is that if you don't learn how to belong, you are severing the thing that you most need in order to become. So if you don't know who to consider, I would just say, I would invite you to take a chance and to begin to trust us. We have lots of people on our, all of our campuses that would be more than happy. We'd be honored to extend ourselves, to cultivate space, to help you to belong in order to become. Let's pray together. Father, as I think about just the number of students and college students and you know, people in this room, that just it it's, it's feels like an avalanche all the time. I ask that you would carve some space for us and that you would quiet the voice of the enemy and let your voice begin to speak to us and bring truth into our lives in ways that we desperately need. God, that we would hear you call us as chosen and dearly loved and holy and pleasing, that the chirp of the enemy and the crickets or the, the, the chirp of, of the the negative thoughts would dissipate just for a moment to give us some space between our ears for our minds to be renewed about what you have actually said and what you have actually done. And we begin to experience life and peace in these sort of momentary chunks as our minds are renewed. Father, I pray that you would help us all as, as, a, as a church, as a body, be able to connect and to learn to trust one another in ways that allow us to live uh, with this kind of habit over the course of time as we become uh, to bear your image more authentically and more fully. So Father, I ask this in the name of your son Jesus, who is our king. It's in his name I pray.